0: Uh like your help with something, uh, just to give let you know something. Um, uh, we would like to do a little survey, uh, a little customer satisfaction survey. Um, and uh, if you go online this week and go to our website, you can do it there. It's some questions like, you know, how do you like the coffee? Uh, how comfortable are the seats? Uh, is the temperature all right in here? You know, things like that. Don't get your iPhones out and do it because it's not true. We're not doing that. Uh, <laughs> But we live in a culture, you know, I thought about that. If we did one, what would, Crystal's was looking at me like, we haven't talked about this. <laughs> I thought he was, this confused look on his face. You know, I thought I'd just throw it out this morning as a rent, you know, because how often in our culture, I mean, you go somewhere, I went to Kohl's the other day and bought some, you know, I think I bought a shirt there anyway, but the thing is, you get on your thing, you have a little thing, you can fill it, please fill in our customer satisfaction survey, and if you do this, we'll give you something. I've never gotten anything from those, by the way, I don't know if you have or not, but, uh, you know, there, people are always asking these questions about things. We live in this kind of cult- customer satisfaction culture where we're constantly being catered to, uh, so we perhaps unconsciously sometimes we bring the same attitude to church with us uh, are my needs being met am i being fed or are my preferences being catered to am i being noticed am i being served and we see this going all the way back into scripture actually in the upper room jesus's disciples uh, when we uh, where we are in the story right now jesus's disciples in the upper room and as a setting for today are having this this discussion jesus is getting ready to go to the cross but they're in the upper room arguing about who is the greatest in the kingdom of God. They're having this discussion about all this stuff about, you know, who is the best? Who's, who's going to get the best seat in the kingdom? And it's after sundown on a Thursday evening. And we read about that in John 13. And Jesus is down to the final, final hours of his life. And while he watches, Jesus watches disciples argue about who is the greatest among them. He knows that the time for sermons is probably over because they've been with him now for two to three years and the thing is they still in some ways don't get who Jesus is And it's right before the triumphal entry into Jerusalem that he says this in Mark chapter 10 verse 45 He says where even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many see Jesus was constantly showing this that that true leadership, from his understanding, uh, was, was about serving. And he calls us to the same kind of attitude in our own lives. But the problem is that kind of attitude, this, this attitude of being a servant, and that spirit is so rare in our culture that when we see it, often it's newsworthy. Uh, I have on my iPad uh, USA Today, and I get that on my iPad every day. And, and last year, this last fall, I was reading a story on there, I kept and I bookmarked it, uh, about uh, something that happened that was newsworthy because of the way the, the attitude was about some kids. It was about a high school football game in Ohio in a place called St. Clairsville High. And uh, St. Clairsville was a really good team. And it was toward the end of the season and they were about to wrap up the championship or go forward and, and it was uh, they were playing a game and they were playing uh, one of their rivals, but they had a, the game looked like it was locked up and their star player a guy named Michael Ferns, a six-three, two hundred 235 pound running back. Um, who was a re- recruit from Michigan, University of Michigan. He's going to be going to Michigan next year. Uh, he was their star running back. He had broken uh, through the line and was going down the sidelines on what appeared to be a 57-yard touchdown run. And as he was running down the sidelines, the strangest thing happened, it says in the story. As he got near the end, he start, kept angling toward the sidelines as he got toward the field. And, and, and right before he was to cross the goal line, nobody was near him. No one was near him. I saw the video of it. He steps out of bounds on the one yard line. And the, and the referees are confused because they're thinking he's, you know, what's stopping him from scoring? So a couple of them throw up their hands touchdown and they're going, what's going on with this kid? But Michael Ferns turns around the kid who supposedly scored a touchdown, turns around and argues with the ref saying, no, it wasn't a touchdown. It wasn't a touchdown. And then the coach comes. The coach of his team comes out on the field and goes, No, it wasn't a touchdown. And they have this argument with the referees. The referees get a little huddled on the sidelines. Some people that had a different angle say, Hey, he he went out of bounds on the one-yard line. That's just the deal. And and all the fans in the stands are totally confused about what's going on. They can't figure out what's going on with this whole deal. But it was something that this star running back, this Michigan recruit, the coaches and some others had pu- pulled up together. And so at that point, what they do is they call a young kid, a, a freshman who, at that, this, the kid there, uh, the team there, everybody dressed out. If freshman all the way up dressed out, they might stand on the sidelines all year long. And this kid had stood on the sidelines all year long. He wasn't even a running back. He was a, he was a freshman outside linebacker. But they called this kid. His name, his name is Logan Thompson. And they asked him to come into the game. And it said, Logan, the coach said, you're going out and you're going in at running back. And they're on the one-yard line, and he doesn't know the plays. And so they they basically tell him, you follow Michael Ferns, and they use big behind, into the end zone. That is the play. And so they run, and that line opens up a play, and this kid, this freshman, runs into the end zone, scores a touchdown, and everybody's confused because even the fans don't know who this kid is. Who's this? Who's number 17? And they look on the stands, and then they, they say it. Logan Thompson scores a touchdown and everybody knew because two days before that, Logan Thompson's dad, a 44 year old man had died of a stroke and Logan Thompson knew his dad would always be there for every game and always understood that he wanted, uh, you know, that he wanted to be there. He didn't know what to do. He was dealing with the next day was going to be his dad's funeral, but he wanted to be there with his team. And his teammates decided they were going to do something to brighten his day. And so they made this plan that if the opportunity arose, that they could go out of bounds on the one-yard line and allow him to go in and score, that this would be something special for this freshman, and he did. You know, when you hear stories like that, and there's a lot more to that story as well. You can read it, USA Today and other places as well. Uh, The thing is, that type of story shows us how we are meant to live our lives. You know, because Michael Ferns could have been one who wanted to pat his stats. You know, he was—he had some really good stats already, a lot of touchdowns, a lot of yards rushing. You know, but he was—but he decided, hey, it's more important. It's more important at this point to give some kind of encouragement, and let it be recognized this young man in a time of need in his life. And so this is the story we come to today, with less than 24 hours left and the clock ticking. Jesus has time for one more lesson. But this time he does not use words. Jesus walks over and he picks up a towel and the arguments who are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven die down and the room grows silent as the status seeking disciples realize that the creator of the world, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the son of God is going to be doing something for them. They're going to he's going to wash their dirty, smelly feet. And we read about that in John chapter 13, verses 4 and 5. If you read the story this week, you read these verses. It says, this, so Jesus got up, he got up from the meal, and he took off his outer clothing, and he wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. In that day, because people walked pretty much everywhere and it was dusty roads and whatever, it was one of the tasks reserved for the lowliest of the servants in the household to wash the feet of the guests in in that place. But as his disciples and Jesus gathered there in that room, there was no servants there. And not one of the disciples volunteered to do this lowliest of tasks. They were probably thinking, well, somebody else can do it. You know, I'm not going to stoop to do that myself. But Jesus, the Son of God, comes over and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. And in John 13, verses uh, 14 and 17, Jesus says, after he's done this, he says this to them. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. See, Jesus came. And we've been talking about this. Jesus came to serve, and he calls us to a life of service as well. As followers of Jesus, he's called us to do the same things that he has done. So let me challenge each one of us, myself included, to serve the way Jesus did. Service that does not discriminate. For instance, Jesus didn't pick and choose whom he would serve that day. Because Jesus knew what was about to happen ahead of of time, before he started washing his disciples' feet. It wasn't about I will I will serve and love others based on what they can do for me. You know, uh, it's real easy, Chris. Isn't it? You know, when people do really cool stuff like you shared earlier, and about generosity, it's really really good to do stuff for people like that. You know, turn around and do stuff. But what about the person who doesn't do anything like that for you? Jesus is surrounded by men whom he, who he has poured his life into, and he knows in just a few hours that Judas one of them is going to betray him. He knows that Peter will deny him. And he knows that the other disciples will abandon him. He knows all of this up front. But he chooses to serve them anyway. Jesus knew all the things. And I asked myself the question, what would I have done in that scenario? If I knew that my best friends were going to deny me, abandon me in my time of need, what would I have done? If you had full knowledge and full power and you knew that the people that would soon betray you, abandon you, deny you, what would you do? I can tell you what I probably wouldn't do. I probably wouldn't serve them. Just to be honest with you, because that is not our nature. It's countercultural, counterintuitive to do the things that Jesus calls us to do. But Jesus serves them, even though they're not—they're go- going to hurt him. As, see, it's—it's it's so difficult sometimes to love and serve people who have hurt us. How do you serve a husband who has never been thoughtful of your needs? How do you serve a child who never says thank you? How do you serve a coworker who talks about you behind your back? How do you serve a father who belittles you? How do you serve a friend who always takes but never gives? How do you serve when you've been taken advantage of and underappreciated? How do you serve in those scenarios? I mean, for most of us, what we do, we neatly fold up our serving towel and we would and we put it in our drawer and say, well, somebody else is going to have to do this because they don't deserve it. Are we suck and say, don't they know what I do around here? Fine, if that's the way they're going to be, then I won't do anything for them. But Jesus, that's not the way he does it. He scrubs the feet of those who would lead soldiers to arrest him. Jesus came to serve. Jesus came to serve. He didn't come to be paid back, to be recognized, to be elected, to be great, to be rewarded, to be crowned. He came to serve. He came to do all those things. And he calls us to live the same kind of life. One of my favorite books recently that I've read is a book about leadership. But it's not the kind of leadership book you'd normally read. It's called Humilitas. Humilitas is a book by a guy named John Dixon. It's, it's about this. He's a historian. And basically what he talks about in that book, and he, and he shows story after story after story, it's about that leadership and humility, if you look historically, in most and many and most great leaders go hand in hand. So often we in our culture, we were talking about this yesterday in men's group, so often in our culture, so often we think that, that you know, a leader is somebody who's bold, take charge, you know, always in control. But that's not the kind of leadership that Jesus shows. And I would simply say that Jesus is the greatest leader that ever lived, not only being our Lord and Savior, he was the greatest leader. People followed him. That's what it means to be a leader. People follow you. You know, there's somebody said one time that if you think you're a leader and, and you look around nobody's following you, all you're doing is taking a walk. And, uh, and so, the, you know, if you want to know what a leader looks like, people follow that leader. And Jesus, people died for Jesus, you know. Sometimes they did abandon him here, but they did follow him and, and ultimately. So John, so that's, that's the thing. So Jesus came to serve. He came to serve. Uh, however, it doesn't end there. After the foot washing... And the Passover meal, he takes his disciples to the Mount of Olives. And he asks them to pray for him. And as he's asking them to pray for him, he's, he's, he's burdened. And this is where we see Jesus' humility and his, and his humanity probably as much or more than any place else in all of scripture. And just this passage out of Matthew 26. Because in Matthew 26 verse 38, this is what Jesus says to his disciples. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Jesus is going, this is a burden. The Son of God is going, this is a burden in my life. I must struggle with this. God's will for my life. And here in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see Jesus in the most epic tug of war of his whole life. This this tug of war between his flesh, this humanity part of Jesus, and his divinity, his spirit. Between the fear of death and being obedient to the path he knew he must follow. Uh, On the next verse, he says, Jesus says this going a little farther, says he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And if you read uh, this this week, the story, chapter 26, you read that there's like three times Jesus goes, he keeps battling. It just wasn't a one time deal. He goes back and he prays and he comes back. And he goes back and he prays and he comes back. And he says the same thing. He battles with this, with this, this, this thing of going, God, I want to do your will, but it is, I'm fearful of this. Jesus was truly, fully human. And as Jesus prayed with his closest disciples in the garden, asking the Father if there was another way, Judas comes, and we know the story. Judas comes and betrays him with a kiss. The guard sees him uh, and then... Uh, Take him and beat him. Take him to court. And there was this battle uh, going going in uh, around there. And this was in the midst of this. Uh, Peter comes. Uh, Peter slices off the ear uh, of one of the guards. Uh, Jesus heals him. All these things taking place. This chaotic type of thing. And from midnight that night until 9 a.m. in the morning. There's this series, if you read this week, this series of trials going on, uh, two before the Jewish leaders, uh, with trumped up charges. And then finally, G- Jesus is before Caiaphas, the chief priest, and he, he asks him this question, are you, are you the Christ, the Son of God? And as Jesus acknowledges this, that's when everything breaks loose. It infuriates the Jewish, Jewish leaders. They accuse him of blasphemy. They spit in his face. They strike him with their fist. They, they, do all these things, and finally they take him to Pilate. You're thinking, well, why did they do that? Because in that day, they were under the Roman rule. And because they were under Roman rule, they had no authority to to uh, to kill people, to put them to death. And they were so infuriated with Jesus that they wanted him to be put to death. And so they took him to Pilate, thinking the Pilate would do this. And so this battle continues all night long. In that time of Christ... The interesting thing that next morning is, is they were in the city, in the city of Jerusalem, a couple of things happened, uh, that was interesting. I, I never experienced this until I went overseas, uh, in, last year in, in Mali. Uh, not exactly the same thing, but similar. I was in the city of, of uh, Bamako, which is the capital of Mali, Mali, and two or three times a day, there would be this, this, these, these, uh, this sound coming. And it was over the whole city. This is a city of like one to two million people. And there's like these these speakers that would come out. and was a call to prayer. And everybody, not everybody, I'll just say that, but a lot of people would stop in their tracks wherever they were when it was a call to prayer, In the, you know, down the street, in the marketplace, wherever it was, and they would get, and this is the Muslim culture, they'd get their mats out and they'd start praying several times a day. Well, in Jesus' day in Jerusalem, uh, there was something similar that went on. At twice a day, once in the morning and once in the afternoon, 9 a.m. in the morning and 3 o'clock in the afternoon, at these two times, a ram's horn would blow. It's called a shafar. And when the ram's horn would blow, it was the signal to remind the people that something was going on in the temple that was significant for them. And what was going on at that time when the uh, the ram's horn was blowing, it was signifying that the priests were sacrificing a lamb on the altar on the behalf of the people for their sins. And in doing so, what happened was, is the people would 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 stop, uh, the, the good Jews, would stop, and they would recognize and they would look toward the temple to be reminded of that sacrifice that was going on there in that day. And in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, we read these words, uh, in the New Testament, it's in Hebrews nine twenty. Too. The people knew this, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so the people, when they saw that, they understood that to mean that the lamb, a lamb was slain and it was being sacrificed for their sins at that moment. And so it was significant in the city at those two times. So this whole battle had been going on with Jesus overnight that they'd taken him from the garden, they'd taken him, they'd gone through all these trials, and at night guess what time? Nine AM in the morning. Nine AM in the morning in Mark fifteen, twenty five, it says it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The first time the shuffle blew, and the people were being thinking about a lamb being slain out on the hill outside of town, Jesus Christ was being nailed to a cross. And imagine at 9 a.m. the people inside the walls of Jerusalem got quiet as everyone knew the sacrifice was going on in their behalf. But they didn't realize, a lot of people didn't realize what was going on just outside. It may have even greater significance for them. Eternal significance for them. And the Bible tells us that three hours later at noon as Jesus hung on the cross, darkness covered the sky for three hours during the middle of the day. Now it's interesting. Think about 33 years earlier when Jesus was born. In the middle of night at midnight... It, we, we see a picture of some groggy shepherds being out on the, out in the fields. And, and, and this huge bright light shines at midnight and lights up the night when Jesus is born. And here, as he's on a cross hanging at noon, the whole earth goes dark. It's kind of like contrast in what goes on there. And then Matthew, Mark, and Luke all share the specific time of death, a day of his death. All three of them say it was at, guess what, at what time? When he finally died, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And Josephus, the historian, records the scene on Good Friday. He was a well-known historian. He said he estimated around 2 million people were crowded in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And you can imagine the scene here. Since noon on that day, there had been this eerie darkness in town, in this city, with all these people. And this whole city is covered in darkness in the middle of the day. I mean, it's not just just a little dark, it's really dark according to the picture. And because of the throngs of people, they don't really probably realize what time it is because of all the hustle and bustle of activity until all of a sudden at 3, 3 p.m. in the afternoon, they hear the chauffeur one, once again. They hear that familiar sound. And at that moment, everyone gets quiet because they realize that a sacrifice is taking place once again. And what most of them don't realize that it was what was taking place outside the city, it was the Lamb of God being sacrificed there as well. And we see that picture, and I never put together all these things as until, until recently, that how it all fit together, that Jesus hung on a cross for six hours to signify at the same time, as, this, as these things were going on in the city, it was, it was so eerily incredible that God would do it that way. But he reminded us. And the people at that time, how important this was. Jesus came not only to serve, he came to save. Jesus came to save. He waits until 3 p.m. He hangs on the cross for six hours. And at the moment a lamb is being sacrificed in the city, of, the lamb of God is sacrificed outside the city. i, I got to tell you this. I think you know this, but i got to tell you this. that It was only through Jesus's death. His perfect sacrifice that we could be forgiven. That you and I could be saved. Jesus, You know what Jesus' name literally means? The word name Jesus literally means the one who saves. It's a little interpretation of that name. And so we would not misunderstand the significance of this. His final words, Jesus' final words on the cross are, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he says this. It's translated in a couple of different ways. In some translations it says, It is finished Maybe a more accurate translation would be: "It is accomplished. It is accomplished. What is accomplished? Well, it's been paid. That's what he's saying. It actually, it's an accounting term. The word is used. It's an accounting term, meaning that the debt has been paid in full. It is finished. It is accomplished once and for all. The temple veil is torn from top to bottom to signify that we have access to God now. We don't have to go through the sacrificial system that God is, Jesus has done it through the Son Jesus Christ." And it's strange that probably at that exact moment when Jesus, when the victory was really won, probably Satan thought that he had won. However, Calvary wasn't the final chapter of the story. Next week we'll learn that Jesus will conquer the grave and death. And because because he has power over death, those of us who trust in him can have power over death as well. It is not the final enemy. When a faithful follower of Christ stands before the Lord, the Bible tells us that rather than seeing all of our sins, God sees this blood of Jesus Christ that covers our sins. And we are safe. I would encourage you to be here with us on Thursday night as we are going to kind of just spend a few moments celebrating some of the events that happened in that upper room that night with Jesus. And then come together and then sing a few songs and, and then focus ourselves on those next three days. Thursday night. And the Friday, Good Friday, we call it. <laughs> That's a strange time for a na- for somebody dying. Isn't it? You know, how many of you, you know, think of your of uh, the death of someone as that good day? Now we don't think that way, but for for those who are in Christ, those who are in Christ, we can call it you know a good day because we go to be with God. But it was Good Friday for us, and then we're going to talk about next week on Easter Sunday. We're going to talk about Saturday, that day in between. When you're in waiting, you're wondering what's going to happen. You know what's supposed to happen, but do you really trust that what God says is really going to happen in your life? We're going to talk about that and then talk about the resurrection and how important that is to our life as well. But I found an illustration I want to close with this morning that that as much as anything talks about how what Easter means for us and and what Jesus' death upon a cross means for us. On October 16, 1987, Northwest Airlines Flight 225 crashed on takeoff uh, in Detroit, Michigan. It killed 155 passengers. Only one child, four-year-old Cecilia, survived. And she was found walking among the wreckage totally unhurt. Everybody else died. And they tried to figure out, that they went through and asked, and she was old enough to ask what happened, you know, even in a traumatized state. But they figured out finally what had happened, that just prior to the crash, Cecilia's mother, Paula, had unbuckled her seatbelt. And she knelt in front of Cecilia, she wrapped her arms around her daughter. And when they crashed, she took all the brunt of all the pain and all the suffering, and the daughter was safe. You see, God sent His Son, Jesus, who wrapped His arms around you and me, and He took the horrible fall with all of its sins so that in the midst of the wreckage of this world we might live. See, God is holy and God is love. And our merits do not enhance God's love and our mistakes do not diminish it. The crucifixion and the resurrection of the... Two most important things that has ever happened in history. And God did it all for us because he loves us so much. Jesus paid it all. Do we believe that? And do we trust in that in our lives? I would encourage you, if you've never accepted Jesus into your life, that you would do so this morning. You know, all you have to do is just say, Jesus, I want you into my life. I want you to be the director, if you want to use the current term, the CEO of my life. I want you to be that. You're not just a good friend. You're much more than that. You're my Savior. You wrap your arms around me, Jesus. You protect me in the ups and the downs, in the midst and the struggles of life as I go through all those things. That's the kind of God we have. This God who would die on a cross for us even though we don't deserve it. Even though He knows, like He knew with His best friends, that we will sometimes... Desert him, sometimes abandon him, but he died for us anyway. This morning, when we close our service after we sing a closing song, I would ask that if you have questions or want to talk about next steps with anybody, that you'll head over toward the prayer room over in that direction. And we would love to talk with you. Or during the week, if you'd like to talk with someone, just let us know. We'd love to sit down with you and talk to you about next step. With Jesus Christ. But I tell you this. uh, Most of you. I will tell you this morning. I I believe most of you already know Jesus Christ. That are here. I'd be hugely surprised. If that's not true. But I want to challenge you to do something. This next week. This next week. Is your greatest opportunity. This whole year. And your easiest opportunity. To invite people. To hear the message of the gospel. Of any time of the year. Culturally. If you don't go to church the whole rest of the year, next week is the time you'll do it. So take some of those cards on your way out on the table out there. Pick them up. Take them and invite your friends. Not only invite them, but bring them with you. Take them to breakfast if you have to bribe them. I don't care. Whatever the need may be, help them to make the decision to meet Jesus in a real way. And here's something very simple next week that will hopefully challenge them. Yeah, there's going to be some cool stuff. And you do not want to be late. But the coolest thing is the story that's in Scripture that we can share. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Great Oaks Community Church's weekly podcast. For more series and podcast information, go to greatoakscc.org.